You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. This is Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, we have specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. From the very beginning, we have been family-owned and family-run. Our tents have become the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers all over the world, and especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who demand utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, our tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. Hello, everybody. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. We have a special treat this episode. Our guest is Leo Holding, one of the great expedition leaders of our time. He's an interesting character. On the one hand, he's one of our most corporate climbers. He's a TV star at home in Britain. But as you'll hear, he's just so enthusiastic, so passionate about these trips, that it's no surprise he keeps getting supported for his wild ideas. Leo is also a superb climber. He has freed Half Dome and El Cap in a single day, and he put up the Prophet, a bold free climb on the right side of El Cap. He's led climbing expeditions from Baffin Island to Patagonia. One of my favorite stories from the 2018 AHA was Leo's account of a two-month expedition to Antarctica. It involves skiing and kiting over 1,400 kilometers in order to attempt a stunning granite tower. This year, Leo's goal was Roraima, a legendary mountain in South America that is steeped in British climbing lore. In 1973, a team of four Brits, Mo Antoine, Joe Brown, Hamish McInnes, and Don Willens, made the first ascent of the super-isolated and dramatic North Prow. Since then, a few more climbs have been done on the Guiana side of the mountain, including two expeditions led by American Mark Sinat. This year's team included Holding, his frequent partners Waldo Etherington and Wilson Cutberth, plus a young British climber, Anna Taylor, and filmmakers Matt Pycroft and Dan Howard. Remarkably, the team also invited two of their local assistants, residents of the nearest town, to join them for this climb. The end result was a 14-pitch climb that started on the 1973 route and then branched out in search of free climbable terrain. But as you'll hear, a complex expedition like this is about so much more than climbing. AAJ assistant editor Chris Kalman connected with Leo to talk about all this at his home in England's Lake District. Leo Holding, I'm sure you require no introduction. Um, you've done all kinds of incredible climbing adventures all over the world. And uh, the reason we're chatting with you today, your recent climb on Mount Roraima, uh, is certainly no exception. Um, so thanks a lot for being here and chatting with us. Pleasure to be here, Chris. So um, maybe why don't you go into a little bit of detail about, you know, the logistics and the challenges posed by uh, climbing Roraima? Well, since this is the American Alpine Journal, and, uh, you know, this is one of the great references in our sport for what's going on in the world, um, by the way, I'm a big fan. I've got a big collection of the books here, and uh, and it's my one of my go-to references for when I'm organizing trips like this. So the first thing to point out is that Mount Roraima is it, 
it's not like a typical mountain, right? This it's a flat top mountain. It's a bit like the mesas that you have in the in the desert over there in the states, right? Um, but it's massive. So the summit is like fifteen square miles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a mountain as you as you'd normally picture them. Um, and what's a little bit complicated is that it sits on the they call it the tripoint border between Venezuela, Brazil, and Guyana. Um, most of the mountain sits in Venezuela, and from that side, it's it's very different. The peak is a it's in a, it's a chain of tapuis, um, what they call the Payacora Range or something, which is a real kind of continental divide. It's not strictly a continental divide, but it's it's a, a watershed um, and on the western side the venezuelan side the the terrain is very different you come across savannah it's called the grand savannah um and it's a national park called the canaima national park which is where most of the world's tapuis are including the angel falls and access to roraima from that side is pretty straightforward there's a uh there's a you can drive and then there's a tourist trail i think it's like a, a week-long tourist hike that goes up to the summit of mount roraima over on the western side Hmm. um however the summit as i said is you know like 15 square miles and on the top it's this really weird landscape of canyons and these incredible like dali-esque sculptures of rock um some of you might remember chris sharma went up there bouldering about 10 years ago um right in that movie king lines exactly yeah and those amazing features and then there's also like a giant chasm which splits the the top of the plateau. So it is possible to traverse from the Venezuelan side over to the Guyanan side, but it's a mission. You know, it's like several days of uh, traversing difficult terrain or difficult hiking terrain across the summit. So that's quite important mm-hmm. to point out because a lot of people have climbed Mike Roraima. You know, as I say, there's a tourist trail. Um, it gets done a lot, but right, that's on right. the Venezuelan side. Um on the Guyanan side, it's a very different kettle of fish. Uh, so what I usually refer to is um, is the prow of Mount Roraima, or what they call it in uh, in Roraima is they call it the Great Northern Prow. It's almost due north, okay. uh, the prow, and as you can see in the pictures, it you know it looks like the bow of a ginormous ship. And on that side, it's really quite different because on the eastern watershed. Guyana is an amazing country. It's one of the most, uh, it's, it has one of the highest biodiversities in the world, and it's really unspoiled. Apparently, 70% of the country is still in its natural state of habitat, which is basically rainforest for huge chunks. So, unlike most of the world where rainforest is, is being dev- devastated, I'm sure many people are familiar with the, the fires raging across the Brazilian Amazon right now. But Guyana's really done a pretty impressive job of maintaining huge swaths of of virgin rainforest. It is the uh, the northern edge of the Amazon basin, so it is the Amazon rainforest. Um, and as you come in from mm-hmm. the Atlantic coast, it's relatively flat for several hundred miles um, until you come up towards the, this mountain chain, and in particular Mount Roraima. So on that side, um, from the east and the north, the the prominence is is remarkable. The the mountain rises up for you know the summit's nine thousand feet, um, and the airstrip where we started is at one thousand feet. So you've got like almost oh, wow. eight thousand feet of prominence, which is off the hook. You know, there's very few places where 
you get that much relief um, over such short distance. So it really is quite something to behold from the from the east and from the north. Um, and then the actual wall section is just like the last fifteen hundred feet of this enormous prow. It's uh, it's a really wild place. Um, so to get there, and the reason that only five trips have been there in fifty years is uh, logistically quite involved. The, the closest airstrip where you can land a plane, Guyana doesn't really have any roads in the interior. Um, there's quite a lot of Amerindian communities scattered around out in the forest, and they use the rivers. Guyana, in the traditional languages, it means the land of many rivers. Um, so they get around the country mm. on uh, in dugout canoes on rivers, or there's a, a real good network of airstrips out in these little communities um, and bush planes, little single engine aircraft flying around every day. They, uh, the domestic airport in Georgetown, the capital, is a, is a classic. There's hundreds of these little planes coming in and out full of chickens and sacks of rice and everything you can imagine con- <laughs> constantly. Wow. Um, and that's kind of what holds the whole country together. The closest one to Mount Roraima to the to the Great Northern Prow is in a community called Philippi. Uh, as the crow flies, it's about forty kilometers, so thirty miles in a direct line. But yeah. through the forest um, and following the lie of the land, that results in a sixty-mile mm-hmm. trek. Um, so obviously, that's that's a long way. Sixty wow. miles through that kind of terrain with the kind of loads you need to climb a, a fifteen hundred foot wall. Um, makes it a pain in the ass. Uh, <laughs> there are right. there are various and, and rather expensive problems. Yeah, there's various strategies that you can use. You can come in from Venezuela. Um, technically, that's illegal um, because you know you're crossing a border without proper paperwork. But it doesn't really matter in that part mm-hmm. of the world. Um, so the way there's really three ways you can do it one way is to hike in and hike out um but that is going to require a lot of time and most likely a lot of porters um that's how they did it in 73 and they had dozens and dozens knocking on 100 porters to support that kind of trip the other way and this is what most teams have done one way or another is to helicopter in and helicopter out um, actually, Mark's one of Mark's trips. They hiked in and helied off the top. Uh, it's easier to helicopter in from hmm. Venezuela because there's a helicopter station a lot closer, so it's a lot cheaper. Um, if you want to heli in from the Guyana side, you've got to come two hours each way just to get to Philippi, um, and then it's high altitude, hmm. so the helicopter can't carry that much payload, so it ends up being really expensive. Right. Um, and also, if you heli in you miss out on the jungle trek, <laughs> you know, uh, jungles are a- <laughs> the, what we all came for, right? <laughs> well, yeah, that's definitely, um, I, I, I did want to do that. I totally didn't want to miss out on that. Yeah. The, uh, jungles and, uh, um, botany in general is, is extremely altitude specific. You know, every sort of hundred feet, the forest really changes. So if you come straight into 7,000 feet at the base of the wall, you, you're basically above the jungle and you're not going to experience any of it. Uh, and I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to 
I wanted to do the track. However, I didn't want to do it with 50 or 60 porters um, because it's a nightmare moving, you know, imagine that, a team of 70 people going through on right. track jungle. That's a headache. I'm doing my um, right. <laughs> Hello, my little boy's just come to say hello. <laughs> He's three. Hello, Hi, how Jackson. are you? I'm doing my maths. Are you doing your maths? Can you take that map down? <laughs> Mummy, please. Yeah. Got a map of the Wind River Range here. Ah, that's a good place to be. Yeah, we're <laughs> Maybe we'll be hearing from the... him in a couple of decades. <laughs> Maybe. We're looking at going in this summer as a, as a family um, with some llamas. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, after uh, looking at various logistical options, the strategy we came up with for this trip um, is quite a fun one. We decided to airdrop all the stuff at the back of a plane into the jungle below the wall. Uh, bearing in mind that you kind of have to get use a plane to get to Philippi anyway. It's only a 12-minute flight uh-huh. from Roraima to Philippi. So, yeah, we the plan was we would drop all the stuff out the back of a plane into the jungle below the wall and then hike in relatively light with just the uh, the stuff we needed for the hike and, uh, you know, maybe 10 guys to help us out on, on that leg of the journey. Um, and then helicopter off the top back to get out. We, I kind of would have been psyched to hike out, but again, you've got a lot of stuff. Um, and yeah, so that's what we did. Right. I, I think that I read you guys dropped close to a ton of gear near the base. Is that accurate? No, it's wildly inaccurate. Um, it was like about, <laughs> okay. it was a thousand pounds. So it was about 500 kilos. Which is about normal. I've done quite a lot of these trips now. And, you know, on this trip, there was six of us from uh, this main climbing team was six. And then there was the two Indian guys that stayed with us. Uh, and we were in the jungle for mm-hmm. uh, t- 32 days, I think. Uh, we had all the gotcha. stuff to climb a, a huge wall, you know, four sets of cams, four portal ledges, um, loads of rope and food food was more than half of of that uh so yeah you need a bunch of stuff when you got a bunch wow. of people you know it's a long trip if you go anywhere for 30 days you know you you can budget kind of one kilo of food per person per day is, is about right and uh so immediately there's you know 30 kilos of food um times eight <laughs> uh and then it ju- it just adds up, you know. You end up with loads of stuff, and when you're doing a new route on a on a on a big overhanging wall, you know, if you go light and fast, you ain't going to get to the top. <laughs> um, the you never know what you're going to find. Um, and from my own experience, the 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 only expeditions that I've ever failed on um, are the ones where you just don't bring enough kit. And if you look at trip reports of people who go to climb gnarly walls. It's when you undergun it mm-hmm. that you don't get to the top more often than not. Well, I'm super excited to dig into the climb itself. But before we get there, um, how did the jungle trek go? Did you guys, I mean, were there any gnarly moments or any run-ins with poisonous snakes? I mean, that sounds like it was probably a, one of the wilder parts of the whole expedition. Well, the whole thing was wild, you know. The uh, just to pick up on 
uh, an airdrop. It, it sounds so simple, right? We'll just drop our kit out of the plane with a parachute. Uh, <laughs> having done it once before and planned and executed this one, it's not simple at all. <laughs> the first thing, where do you get the parachutes from, right? How do you procure it? Uh, and, and how do you do it? What What's the process? And are the people who are on the plane going to allow you right. to do it? And it, it really isn't as simple as it sounds unless you are the military. Um, but we, uh, I did a bunch of research and we came up with this amazing system that is actually uh, what the British military use when they do parachute drops into jungles. And it's kind of a special system because obviously if you drop in stuff into a forest, uh, it's almost certainly going to get stuck in the trees um, because parachutes right. are covered in lines. How tall are the trees? You know, they could be up to 200 feet tall. So we use this ingenious system. And after a lot, I mean, do, do you throw it all in one massive load on like a pallet or do you throw out 10 loads that are only 20 kilos or I don't really want to do that because you don't want to find 20 loads spread out across a rainforest. Bear in mind, you know, sometimes if you hit uh, particularly bad terrain, it's it's like days per mile as opposed to miles per day. <laughs> Uh, and when yeah, a plane's right. traveling at 100 knots through the sky and you're throwing stuff out, the distribution pattern's going to be massive. You know, there's no way you're going to get everything in the same spot. Anyway, we decided after a lot of research to do it in four, like, 300-pound loads um, with this special system where the, you throw the load out the plane and then essentially the, it has 200-foot-long risers. So there's basically a 200-foot-long rope. Um, attached to the load which was two giant haul bags strapped together okay. and then the parachute is 200 feet above the the haul bags um the idea mm. being and what happened perfectly <laughs> was the uh, the bags come crashing through the the canopy of the forest uh and land on the ground uh before the uh the, the parachute gets tangled in the trees uh and then obviously you've got the issue of finding the stuff you know this you can't overstate how dense the the primary rainforest it's never been cut down before nobody ever goes out there even the local indian guys they never go that deep on their hunting missions or fishing missions it's just too far for them so um so we had uh, a fairly ingenious system involving like uh, a gps and shortwave radio transmitters as well as strobe lights and and really loud beepers attached to these bags uh, so that we'd be able gotcha. to find them. It's kind of similar technology to what you use in avalanche transceivers, um, but with a battery uh -huh. that would last for uh, for two weeks. Uh, so yeah, we it, wow. it, it isn't it isn't as simple as it sounds, right? <laughs> but anyway, it, it was awesome. So we threw all our stuff out the plane uh, right into the flat area below the mountain, um, and then flew to the the community of Philippi where where we landed now that community is super remote they don't have any communications uh they don't even have vhf radio mm. anymore since that broke um so there's no way of contacting these people uh unless you go there p physically and there's no scheduled flights you have to charter a, a plane to get out to this community um it's quite a big wow. place there's about 1200 people that live in philippi it's kind of a spread out town they're pretty much subsistence farmers um and they supplement their diet with with hunting missions into the jungle they they do have rifles and shotguns but they still use bow and arrows a lot because they don't have to buy ammunition mm. uh, and i mean they hunt animals 
the size of tapirs, uh, which is like a they call it a, a jungle cow. So it's literally the size of a cow that they hunt with bow and arrows hmm. that they make. Uh, some wow. other communities still use poisoned frog darts. So yeah, it's this it's this wild place. But what's particularly amazing about Guyana, certainly for for me as a Brit, is that it's an English speaking country. It's the only English speaking country in South America. So these huh. Amazonian Indian dudes, they all speak like Bob Marley, man. Uh-huh. You know what I was saying? Um, it's kind of much more <laughs> Caribbean influence than 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 Latin. It's not a Latin country. It's it's classed as a Caribbean country, um, which right. is just awesome because it means you can talk and hang out and and make friends yeah. with with the, these Amazonian Indians. And you know they don't. Uh, they don't really dress in the traditional way anymore. They wear, you know, soccer shirts and uh, and gum boots, what we call wellies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they still live this incredible lifestyle. Super interesting people. Some of the fittest and healthiest people you'll ever meet. They they don't have artificial light. There's no electricity out there. Um, so they just live with the kind of natural cycles. They get up at stupid o'clock in the morning. They get up at like half past three in the morning every day. <laughs> Uh, and start banging and crashing around. <laughs> uh-huh. The sun comes up at, at six, um, and they're like already fully active by six a.m. And then the sun goes down about six, uh, and it gets dark really quick. And then they go to bed at eight. Um, so yeah, they, it's uh-huh. just this in- incredible privilege to to hang out with these guys. And like twelve guys came with us in the end. Um, and I have a friend in Guyana. I've been on a couple of trips there before. And uh, he was instrumental, this guy called Ian Craddock, who runs a company called Bushmasters. And he was totally instrumental in, uh, in he was the fixer on the ground. So he went out to this village, Philippi, twice in the six months prior to the expedition to explain what we wanted to do and to, to get the permission from the community they don't really trust outsiders very much because they've had a lot of bad experiences with Mm. oil companies and diamond miners and loggers um so when you come saying that yeah you you wanted like go to all this effort to to climb a mountain they're a little bit suspicious um and also we needed them to open a trail and so they did that uh a few weeks before we arrived and that's a big task you know to to cut a uh, yeah. a trail through the forest um so what happened was a team of six guys went in uh, about three weeks before we arrived and opened the trail right mm-hmm. up to the uh to the the saddle below where it starts getting difficult um then four of them stayed in and two of them came out the four who stayed in stayed because I was really worried we weren't going to find this stuff when we airdropped it. And I was hoping that they would be able to find a vantage point where on the 8th of November, when we flew in, they'd see the parachutes drop into the jungle and they would Mm. have a weak head start to try and find the stuff. Um, Two of them came out to guide us in. And then we came in with like eight porters Uh, and the trek in was absolutely Mm -hmm. wonderful. I'm so glad we did that. You know, it was helicoptering into the base of the wall yeah it's efficient um but it, you would 
it would have been less than half the experience. It's so everyone knows about the cliche yeah. of the jungle, right? Everyone's on straight and on the deadly snakes and the spiders uh, and the scorpions mm-hmm. and all of which is true. You know, we did see a, a bird eating spider that was way bigger than my hand. Um, we did see a, oh, God. a deadly snake. <laughs> um, actually, we had a pretty close call right at the base of the wall. Uh, Wilson, we were like terracing some area at camp and he moved this rock and we're pretty sure it was a, a liberia a fertile lance which is the most deadly snake in south america um mm. was right there under the rock you know centimeters from his hand wow um uh, and there was a shitload of scorpions excuse me there was <laughs> there was lots of scorpions on <laughs> but yeah they're, they're the cliche that you know and uh, we're guilty of it too because it, it's a high drama but the truth is that there's a lot more yeah. going on than just the creepy crawlies. There's all kinds of wondrous creatures, and the jungle is is alive. You know, they they say the rainforests are the, are the lungs of the planet, right? And personally, I I yeah. love them. Um, and and there's lots of different kinds of of rainforest. Technically speaking, it's not jungle. Jungle is actually just the edge of the forest where it, it comes into in, mm. into savanna or other terrain. Um, and and it changes constantly. Every kind of couple of hours there. The trees start to change subtly. It changes with altitude. It changes when you get closer to the rivers. The insects, especially at night, it, I mean, it's loud. It's like somebody playing music loudly. Um, it, wow. it, it doubles in volume at night. Cicadas and frogs and um, all kinds of crazy noises uh, and beautiful flowers. And we were super lucky on the way in because mm. the, the weather was good. It didn't rain um, the whole time. We had six days of perfect weather. Hardly any mosquitoes. Mm. Um, it, it's beautiful. And once wow. you've got your that systems, nice. when you've got your systems down, it, it's like anything. You know, if you don't know what you're doing and you, you don't have the right kit, you're going to have an epic. But, but I do know what I'm doing. Um, and one of my partners, Waldo Etherington, he's extremely experienced in in jungle travel. He's spent years of his life um in jungles so we know what we're doing we mm. know exactly what kit you need the right kind of hammocks the right kind of boots um you basically have a wet set of clothing and a dry set of clothing and you just put your wet stuff on in the morning uh-huh. except you're going to get soaked you come to a river at lunchtime you just jump in with all your clothes on and your boots <laughs> wash all the sweat right. and mud off, <laughs> get out and then after a couple of hours you dry again um and what was also mm-hmm. super cool on that track and extremely unusual and a bit of a surprise to me was that it was really flat. So in seven days yeah. and 60 miles of hiking, it was only on the last day that we started to gain any significant altitude. Um, and it's something I've realized as mm-hmm. having been a climber my whole life, I kind of don't like hiking, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because as a climber, you nearly always have a heavy load and you nearly always hike yeah. uphill. And nobody likes hiking uphill right, with a heavy right. load, right? But um, hiking <laughs> exactly. across the flat with a reasonable load is actually really pleasant. And I, it kind of dawned on me what all these trekkers are into because they don't carry 60-pound yeah. loads and they're not always going uphill. <laughs> so it was sweet. It was a wonderful experience. We went past these two epic waterfalls. That you know They would be the kind of places that there'd be a parking lot by and there'd be a, a, a state park if they were in the States. But as it is, they're, they're, yeah. you know, no one ever goes there. And then finally on day seven, we got to uh, 
to our base camp, uh, met up with the four guys who had indeed found all our stuff um, and got it all together. Uh, and yeah, then nice. we started the next chapter. All right. Well, without further ado, let's dig into that chapter. So I'm let me let me just throw out what I'm envisioning. I'm envisioning a dead vertical wall of sandstone, but you can't see any of the rock for the first 100 to 200 feet at least because it's covered in vegetation and bromeliads and all kinds of pokey plants and who knows what else. Is that at all accurate? Not really. They Because um, there's another whole section <laughs> before the wall, uh, which was a massive part okay. of, of the expedition. Um, you can hike to base camp and the base camp was on this call directly underneath the, the prow. So the prow of Orion, it's this big wedge, right? Um, like it really does look like the front of a ship, but the wall part is just the, the top, like 1500 feet below that. There's another two and a half thousand feet of ridge, um, that comes down mm-hmm under vertical but it's steep in places it's you know almost vertical um so right above base camp there's a slime forest the i'm pretty sure there's it's absolutely unique habitat it's (laughs) unbelievable the first 600 feet are nearly vertical um so it's this full-on snakes and ladders adventure playground waterfall mud clad insaneness uh, and then once you get through the first 600 feet, there's another 1,800 feet elevation gain through this wild terrain, and it co- constantly changing as you gain more altitude. You're going from like just under 5,000 feet up to just over 7,000 feet here. Um, so you go mm. from kind of what you would imagine a jungle to be like, although the trees are probably only like 60, 70 feet tall, through to above the tree line at the base of the wall there's no trees um or right. they're more like shrubs okay gotcha because of this incredible prominence that barima has it creates its own weather um it has two very short dry seasons uh kind of october november and and, and march uh but as with anywhere dry seasons and, and monsoons they're they're not strict calendar dates right there's a couple of weeks mm-hmm. either, either way um and as always happens, like, and even in the dry season, because you've got this 7,000 feet of prominence uh, and a rainforest underneath, Rorima is always shrouded in cloud. Um, and the reason this incredible slime mm-hmm. forest exists is because, like, literally 330 days of the year, it's foggy and cloudy um, from 6,000 to 7,000 feet. Um, so it's just a saturated environment. It's always in the in water they there's a local legend says that uh only those of pure heart will ever even see rarima which is because it's in the cloud mm-hmm. all the time uh and that creates you know a okay, lot of can problems I, okay i just want to talk about the slime forest for a second since we're talking yeah. about problems um how do you climb you said that was vertical that section right through the slime forest well i mean it's not vertical there's vertical sections and it but it's steep uh-huh. uh so it started raining the day we arrived in base camp and 
it rains, you know what I mean? Like full on tropical downpours where it's like a fire hose turning on for kind of sometimes hours at a time. Uh, It had been dry and you could see Roraima the whole time. In the day we arrived in base camp, it started raining heavily, which means everything just turns into a full on Mm. mud fest, you know, like mud, mud that comes up like halfway to your knee that and sticks to everything yeah. so you're getting out your hammock in the morning and stepping straight into mud that's halfway up your calf um and wow. that was a little bit kind of uh sort of disheartening and a little bit of a motivation smack because what we didn't know at that stage is how steep the wall was um but it didn't really affect mm-hmm. us for this next section because we it's a big operation to get all the gear and food up this 2,000-plus feet slime forest. So the yeah. first bit, the first time up, uh, Waldo, Wilson, and I, and one of the Indian guys, Edward, who'd been there before, he'd been with Mark Sinner on both of his expeditions, so he knew where we were going. Mm. But the, to be honest, the route finding mm-hmm. was very straightforward because you go right up the ridge. Um, and you basically just throw yourself at the vegetation and scrabble your way up. There. <laughs> uh, it's, it's awesome. Waldo's had done a lot of, uh, tree climbing in the jungle. So he led most of it. Um, and okay. there was a couple of hard sections where the vegetation got a bit thinner, um, but you basically climb the vegetation and, uh, by uh-huh. the time y- you, you, some of it you really only get one shot because you pull everything off on your way up and you can't right, really, right. You can't really second <laughs> it because it's gone. Yeah. But, and you are absolutely plastered from head to foot in mud, right? It's You couldn't make it up. If right. you were expecting like a, a, a sun rock cragging trip, you'd be extremely disappointed. But if you're out there looking for an adventure, <laughs> it was just awesome. You know, when, when do you get to like dive head first into a – slime covered mud bowl uh, i mean literally <laughs> you look like you'd just thrown yourself into a pigsty it, it absolutely soaked from head to foot completely covered in mud. Right. It, it was awesome it was so much fun and obviously we fixed the line uh through these steps so that after that you could so, uh, you could jug it yeah you just jug up Kind but, of. So but what are you doing? Not, okay. not, not jugging as we know it, right? Like, Because uh, the ropes get so muddy. And then after the steep bit, like the slime forest, dude, you, you couldn't make it up. There's this literally six inches of the slimiest, like a kid's show gunk stuff that just covers everything, all the trees, <laughs> all the ground. Sometimes you get these amazing snotsicles. They look like icicles. They look exactly <laughs> like icicles, you know, six inches long, uh-huh. hanging off. And it's just this slime stuff that is just incredible. Um, and it's these weird, stunted, contorted trees that are all kind of tied around each other, really, really dense terrain. And every now and again, you'd, you'd come out onto a slightly exposed part and there'd be a thousand foot drop that you could die if you if you went. And then you'd be like, OK, right. b- back into the slime. Uh, yeah, just absolutely otherworldly. Anyway, wow. then you, you come out of that and you come into it's called the Eldorado Swamp, a f- full on swamp like mud it was when it rained heavily it was knee deep this insane swamp that you had to go across and then finally you go through this crazy bromeliad forest where you've got these huge 
um, a, uh, what it's called, reservoir bromeliads, these massive plants that can hold hundreds of gallons of water. They're enormous. Uh, and you, wow. you kind of walk across the top of them to get through this one section. <laughs> and then you have to go down and start tunneling underneath them. And some of these things are like the size of, uh, you know, like the size That's of armchairs. Oh, it was so crazy, man. It was so wow. much fun. And we did that quite a few times to <laughs> hiking up and down with loads. And obviously, once you've done it, well, basically, once you've done it once, there's a, there's a bit of a trail. And by the time you've done it 10 times, there's a shockingly uh, impactful trail. Uh, and, it, and it changes. And yeah. then, finally, we got to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I, I can honestly say, Leo, of all the interviews that I've done, I don't think I've ever gone. I'm watching the clock right now. It's 43 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I don't think I've ever gone 43 minutes before we got to the climbing. But yeah. um, I'm actually really glad that that's how this has gone because that's really – what an expedition's like, right? I mean, you spend way more time getting to something and dealing with the logistics and planning and all of that than you ever do on the climb. Well, exactly. It, you know, there was we were there for just over four weeks, and it was about exactly the same as this interview. It was nearly three weeks until we were properly established and ready to climb. Um, certainly, it was it was over two weeks until we we roped up for the first pitch. Uh, and then it, it, it was good. The, uh, we, we totally scored because we'd been in this kind of shithole mud scene. Um, and it, it's hard, you know, camp, mm-hmm. no, one, no one likes camping in the rain. That's why English people don't dig it. Um, it it's ghetto when you, you know, everything's muddy and, it, and it's remarkably cold because you, even though yeah. you're near the equator, it's, you know, you're at 7,000 feet, you're wet, it's windy. Um, but what saved us was the wall is so steep that right at the base of the wall, like literally where you need to start, where you need to rack up, there was kind of an alcove uh, that was sufficiently steep. And with a bit of work terracing, mm-hmm. that's where Wilson uh, nearly got bitten by the snake. Um, we were able to make a, it was a hang, it was a portal edge camp, but right at the base of the wall. Um, and it just saved us because even in these wild, full-on storms you know like massive rainstorms with serious wind it mm-hmm. stayed dry this big ledge area where where we were all able to hang out the, 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 there was no mud the wow. dirt was like you know full-on california style dirt um which was just a savior because it meant for the last kind of week 10 days we were there we, we were out of the of the rain and then the wall above about 1500 feet was so steep that it stayed dry even in the wildest storms that's amazing yeah and how was the rock i mean the rock looked like it was really good they say that the quartzite um which rima is is constructed of is some of the oldest rock in the world um the oldest geological features exposed Mm. it's over two billion years old um and it's the Mm. hardest rock you can possibly imagine it's real bullet hard um, it's kind of a, a metamorphosis type of sandstone, so it's it's amazing. You can climb on mm-hmm. razor-style edges. However, um, it's also quite loose. So the rock is hard, but there's, gotcha. there was a lot of kind of hairy sections of large flakes and stacked blocks. Um, so it was, you know, it was kind yeah. of heads-up climbing. Uh, but to be honest, when when we set off, we actually started up the first uh four pitches of of the 73 british route 
they they aided the whole mm-hmm. thing. They barely stepped out the radars on the whole wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking up the wall, I thought there's no way we were going to be able to free climb it. Um, I, I didn't. I wasn't mm-hmm. even sure we'd be able to get up it because it, it's so steep and intimidating looking. Uh, with these giant yeah. roofs, it's like a heart, there's four or five, like twenty foot horizontal roofs, um, right on wow. the prow. Um, which is why it stayed dry. They kind of were all offset, uh, and it, it they just made like umbrellas mm. over the route. Uh, and mm-hmm. basically, Wilson and I swung leads mostly, um, and we 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 were on site. We were on site in this terrain that looked like five fourteen sport climbing, and it and it was going on site at kind of five twelve. Uh, it just it was wow. so good. It was so good. Uh, and every now and again, that you'd come into a, a section that was exposed to the the weather, and like mm-hmm. someone had, was was gifting us, there'd be five nine five ten sections that were running with water, but it was a perfect hand crack or a, mm. or a massive like loads of horizontal breaks so it didn't matter and then you'd step right. back into 512 terrain literally one move you'd be back into 512 terrain that was dry uh it was we we were just gifted it was it was awesome when you were leading on the on the steeper and harder terrain are you guys leading basically with like a double set of cams and just hoping for the best or do you have a like a bolt-in drill kit that you're carrying on your on the leader uh hooks like how what was your style for that so we had all of the above this is the first time i've ever brought a power drill on an expedition um and it's Mm -hmm. a long story but basically um yeah we brought a power drill which i don't know how i feel about i would i've never brought one before because if you you know i've brought hand drills um but if you bring a power drill it's a lot easier to place bolts, so you end up placing more. Right, right. Um, but it was mainly because there was, I knew, you know, we brought two of the Indian guys up with us. Um, uh, right from the start, mm-hmm. I really liked the idea of kind of sharing skills. So we couldn't have got to the base of the wall without the help of the local Indian community. Um, and right from the sure. and you know, we paid him to carry our bags and open the trail. But on the very first day when I met yeah. all the guys, I was like, look, guys, we've brought two extra sets of kit with us. Um, so if any of you are up for and have, I've, I've hung out with these Amerindians in Guyana before, and they're super intelligent, super strong people. So I kind of knew that, mm-hmm. you know, we could train them up on the job if they were up for it. Uh, and of the 15 mm-hmm. guys, so we walked in with like, uh 11 guys and then there was the four guys in there sure enough two of them edward there he's 56 years old and was on both of mark sinnott's trips he and another guy troy who was waiting in there for us who'd found our stuff they were super psyched to to come with us on the wall um so we trained them up we taught them how to do mark on the first couple of pitches and uh and they came up with us um so there's eight of us wow. on on the wall right uh, four portal edges, like eight tall bags. I mean, when have you? When do you ever climb a wall as a team of eight, man? <laughs> you don't do it, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it's probably pretty nice to have a power drill in yeah, that circumstance. We like Waldo's also a rigger, and we debated it a lot. And he was like, "Dude, we need mm-hmm. double bolt belays because you know, um, right? 
and also if you don't use bolts and belays, it just sucks up so much rack um, that you'd need to bring yeah dozens of racks. But when it came to the lead-in, basically, yeah, pretty much a double set of cams, a double set of wires, two ropes, which is critical, loads and loads of longs, mm. uh, loads and loads of slings and extenders, because it's not like splitter crack systems that you're following. It's horizontal breaks, mm-hmm. it's continuous corners, lots of traverses, two giant traverses, one like 35-meter horizontal traverse pitch. Um, wow. and, and that's kind of what we do in the UK a lot. It's like uh, um, it works really well having the two ropes and loads of extenders. You can climb all over the place. You don't get too much drag. Actually, three ropes. We were climbing with um, two two lead lines and a, and a tag line, a skinny tag line, so you can still pull stuff up and then every now and yeah. again you'd have to tag up the drill but we did pretty well we i think we only placed seven or eight lead bolts in 14 pitches um but nice. at least two bolts on every belay and about six bolts on the on the portal edge camp awesome so um and during the climb itself what were can you kind of walk me through like the crux pitches or maybe some of the more memorable climbing on the route? Well, one key pitch that's worth mentioning was it's the, uh, it was the fourth pitch right off. Uh, um, this was climbed by the, the Brits back in 73 and they named this thing Tarantula Terrace. Uh, and whilst we were on Tarantula Terrace, Troy got bitten mm. by a tarantula, <laughs> um, Whoa. Which, which is quite funny. Um, contrary to popular belief, <laughs> tarantulas bites are not that serious uh you know it's like a bee sting um but it actually happened on tarantula terrace and then the pitch right off there (laughs) is a bolt ladder that they drilled in in 73 um now we got there and wilson aided up that and then we continued climbing it meanwhile one of the other team members anna taylor who's this young girl from just down the road to where i live here in the lake district He's never been on an expedition mm. before, never been on a wall before, but is a really good kind of hard trad climber here in the UK. Uh, we left her to mm. deal with that. Um, and she like top down red pointed it. So she top roped it and she spent a few days like what we call head pointing, right? Work, working it on a top rope. Yeah, yeah. We actually put a couple of bolts in it on one section. Uh, and then eventually she red pointed that pitch, which was probably the crux pitch certainly in terms of uh you know the hardest move um and also one of the best Uh pitches the rock right there was just as good as rock gets this beautiful pink bullet hard Mm. quartzites uh really bouldery crux a a huge move off these two little holes um and a a really amazing pitch that was probably the technical crux of the whole route uh which she red pointed on um on about her seventh attempt which was which was good she was starting to get pretty stressed as you do when you're you know, trying to to, to, yeah, pull, yeah. to pull an expedition red point out of the bag. Uh, and meanwhile, Wilson and I were swinging leads through this wild terrain above, very different in character, much more serious, um, mm-hmm. although technically probably not as hard. Uh, you know, but it, it, it's, it's a weird style of climbing because when you're going up first on a, on a new route and it's loose and it's steep and it's, it's really scary you know you really are going into the unknown and you, you never quite know how hard to push it the further above the last piece you go the more right. danger you're in you're in the middle of nowhere right this yeah. is like a really serious situation um but then when yeah. you're second in and your buddy's just had a two-hour ordeal on lead 
it's chalked, you're on a top rope, you can see where you're going. It was remarkably easy. And so we had this kind of comic situation where we were both being traumatized by these hardcore leads. And then the second would like pretty much hike up it. <laughs> Apart from a couple <laughs> of pitches where it did get a bit harder. Um, I had one. I, I on-sighted it for the first 10 pitches. Uh, I, I flashed the hard pitch okay. on, a, on, a, on a top rope. Um, I let all my pitches on site. I seconded all Wilson's first go until literally two feet below, literally two feet below the easy terrain. Um, and oh, no. <laughs> easy terrain being vegetated, right? So we, you're coming off steep, yeah. clean rock into vegetation. Right. Uh, and I literally got shut down on the last move of, of this long, hard pitch. Uh, and then ended up coming back a few days later and, and red pointing it. Um, and then that was the easy terrain that led off the, the prow round the corner of the wall and it was super different around the corner way more exposed to the weather and then there was one more hard pitch up there which uh which was super gnarly i, I maybe you know we say there's a fine line between badass and dumbass right and it, 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 we i kind of crawled uh-huh. on that pitch and, and got myself into a situation where i would have probably died if i'd fallen off and it was kind of five twelve minus climbing um yeah i didn't feel too clever when i finished that section and i ended up having to uh to sit it it was really wet so i ended up having to um sit on gear anyway after a a death 512 section um yeah we managed to go back and free that uh when it dried up a bit and then uh and then yeah Uh we we got to the top (laughs) awesome oh gosh sounds just freaking outrageous like start to finish um just a couple quick questions about uh anna's pitch so the first question would be uh how hard like technically what was the technical grade of that pitch and then the second question uh how were those 1973 bolts looking <laughs> uh well the bolts were super shitty they 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 were the rock is so hard that they were having a really hard time drilling it mm-hmm. they go on about it a lot in the book um so when mm. wilson aided it he replaced like every third or fourth one um gotcha and technically i think we called it i mean in british grades i think we called it e5 6c which is it's probably 512 plus um but that pitch was safe so it was you know there was it was probably like a v6 boulder problem something like that um um, but then some of the other pitches were maybe technically a little bit less hard, but a lot more serious, what we would call kind of E6, 6B. Yeah. So 12, solid 12, but R, possibly even X um, mm-hmm. on some of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, but just so good. Um, the fact that it stayed dry, I mean, it rained heavily every single day we were on the wall. Um, and, and the fact, I, I can't believe yeah. we were able to free climb in those conditions. And the whole thing went free. Um, of all the big expeditions I've been on, that's the first time that the route has gone 100% free, um, which was nice. Wow. You know, it, it really didn't look like it was going to. And we got the two Indian guys up at the top, uh, Edward and Troy. They're called the Akawayo Indians. And that's a big deal in Guyana. You know, people know, Rima's famous in Guyana and uh, 
for two yeah. First Nations peoples to be the first Guyanese to climb their iconic mountain. It was a big news. We did like a big press conference. The the vice president came. The uh, the minister for the interior was there. It, it's kind of they're they're pretty famous. I think they might they've been put forward for medals and nice. stuff, which I was psyched about because <laughs> awesome. you know as I said we couldn't have got to the base without them, and they certainly couldn't have got to the top without us. Right. So did they? Do any free climbing on the route? No. And if so, about how hard would you say they? No, they just they were strictly jogging. Yeah, they they jogged the whole thing, apart from like the last pitch, which was like five six, um, uh-huh. and the slime forest. Uh-huh. But they were good climbers, though. Like they, uh, <laughs> some of the yeah, they they were they didn't bother using the ropes in the slime forest that much, and they were climbing like five eight with a. 50 pound load in the wet <laughs> but when it got to the wow. wall it, it was the, it was pretty hard you know it was kind of 10 plus all the way yeah. right off the ground um at least right. so uh it's not the kind of t- i mean they'd never worn harnesses before right we we fully right, right. them. but waldo's done a lot of uh of of rigging teaching so he's got a really good system for taking someone who's never worn a harness and doesn't know what a carabiner is and two hours later, they're climbing a big wall, which is what happened. Right. Yeah, I mean, on a wall that steep, I'm imagining, like, to jug, I mean, were they doing lower outs from oh, the yeah. anchors? Yeah, yeah, I mean, time. it must have been jugging in free-hanging space, which would be pretty uh, attention-grabbing if it was your first time in a harness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, mo- most of the wall was free hanging jugs and lots of traverses. So like there was a full on like 30 meters, like a hundred foot horizontal rigged section that you had to kind of, you know, tour in across. Um, so yeah, they were lowering out, right. and they were transferring and they were, they were doing the whole work. Um, but the trick is, you know, you need to, it's a really systematic approach to teaching them, which Waldo's very good at. And then you just have someone eyes yeah. on them all the time so that they, just can't leave them to it you can't leave them at belays to deal with stuff on their own once they're on a rope there's not that much you can do wrong you just make sure there's someone competent at yeah. the belay either ahead of them or behind them yeah and they loved it you know they spent four nights hanging in the portal edge giggling their way through the night they uh it, it was really cool. cool to get everybody up there yeah pretty cool um so you ended up getting helicoptered off the summit. Is that right? Yes. Or how'd you guys get down? This is kind of a long story. <laughs> Simply put, okay. <laughs> uh, basically, Waldo Wilson and I stayed. Uh, everybody else helicoptered off the top. And the helicopter that arrived... I mean, this was an expensive expedition, right? It, it adds up all this stuff. Yeah. Um, I work with a British company called Berghaus. They put a chunk of cash in but nowhere near enough like less than half um so right. i got a few other small sponsors on board and then i do bits of guiding work and i've got a couple of clients who uh have got lots of money but they're not technically skilled um so two of mm-hmm. these two of these private clients and a couple of their friends came in on that helicopter having paid for it um and then we guided them uh-huh. down the wall uh, down the route that we just climbed <laughs> with two nights on the wall whilst we cleaned it. Wow. And then we guided them down through the slime forest, uh, four of them. Uh-huh. None of them had any experience. We'd done one training day on ropes with them. 
And then we went back up through the slime wow. forest, got all the kit, hiked it down, uh, and then we helicoptered out from base camp a week later. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of a... Uh, That's great, because one of my questions was just going to be, how did you get all the stuff out? But it seems like you guys were able to go back down the wall, kind of clean whatever fixed gear or, or you know things you might have left there. Did you feel like you guys did a pretty good job of of bringing out like everything you brought in oh fully and one of the questions about that i had is like that ingenious parachute system you had i mean do those parachutes then get stuck in the trees or are you able to retrieve those no zero footprint they call it they uh it's a damn sight easier to get a parachute out of the tree than a parachute with a 300 pound load hanging off it right um they were pretty easy to get down We we were expecting to have to climb the trees to get them down um but we uh, we managed to get to just pull them down. Um, so yeah, we got all those out. Awesome. The original plan was we were going to haul everything up to the summit and helicopter off the summit because uh, mm-hmm. there isn't many places to land helicopters in in the forest, uh, and they can't long line out yeah. there. Um, but because of uh, because I managed to convince these clients of mine um, to come out. Which, by the way, must be the most awesome experience ever if you're not a climber and you've you know, <laughs> you've never done anything in a harness. And the next thing, and we had it rigged so well, it was <laughs> insane right off the top. There was one light scrappy abseil and then there was this little ledge that you step off right on the prow, seven and a half thousand feet wow. above the jungle below, 2,000 feet above the ground, straight into five consecutive completely free hanging abseils um it was utterly wild you know uh they did super well um and with two two nights on the wall in uh, in portal edges so yeah and then we we cleaned the whole thing waldo and wilson are two of the strongest partners you could ever hope for i think i carried a 70 uh it was nearly 70 kilos so like 130 pound load down on the down through the slime forest on the last load i couldn't lift it um and getting down that kind of terrain with that kind of load is hard work um yeah but yeah we we left nothing behind all obviously we left a um a bunch of bolts behind in the belays <laughs> but the, the the big thing that was an issue was like the the trail you know from hiking up and down the slime forest I can't say there was yeah. zero impact because what started off as a bushwhack, it, it leaves a significant trail and then that becomes a water course. Um, so, yeah, I, it, mm. there's no such thing as no impact when you're in a, uh, a virgin environment like that. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously a big expedition and, and not without precedent. I mean, sounds like this is kind of how things go on Roraima. What are your personal feelings? I mean, there's obviously a give and take between, you know, I don't know, let's say you pack raft in somewhere and hike your stuff to the base over 10 days, like, you know, a Sylvia Vidal style, like big wall expedition where you're kind of doing things in the most minimal impact style possible versus a big thing like this. Well, what do you um, mean by a big how, thing? As how do you fall on that subject? Well, by far the largest impact on any expedition is the intercontinental flights to get there. So you can pack raft all you like, but if you flew from Spain to Chile, 
that is hands down the most impactful part of any expedition. So unless you sail, um, you, you kind of, you're talking about personal ethics, um, rather than true impact. Um, so all that is by the by, you know, the only way to get to Philippi is to go in with a bush plane. So that's the only way of getting there. So if you are going to go to that part of the world, you're going to go in a bush plane. Um, the extra half an hour of flying time to drop the stuff with parachutes is not that significant. Um, the real Mm -hmm. impact was the hiking loads. Ironically, that was what did the damage. Uh, so, you know, if you're applauding people who hike that, that, that is by far the most environmental impact we had on this trip was hiking loads up and down Mm -hmm. a hill. Um, and there's no way of avoiding that if you're going to, uh, climb a big wall basically um so if anything that's yeah. the thing that i would have and i don't know how i mean the, the way to avoid that would be to helicopter directly to the base of the wall um but then you don't have the same adventure right and it would have been kind of cool to hike out but um we'd we'd have had to have done it four times or contracted another 20 porters to come in and help us carry all the stuff out um so right. yeah, I don't think it was a high impact expedition. Well, Leo, thank you so much for chatting with me. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation and just learning more about the jungle and the the people that live there and all of the other things that go into an expedition that we don't always end up hearing about. So thanks for providing such detailed information. Yeah, I hope more people get to go out there. Hopefully Venezuela will calm down politically because the climbing in the Tapuis over there is a lot more straightforward. Um, and, uh, and yeah, everyone should check it out. If you're into adventurous climbing, then the Tapui land is, is something else. You can see photos from this expedition at the Cutting Edge website and at Leo Holdings' Instagram page. At our website, you can also find a film made for television by the 1973 British Expedition. It's a classic. The film about this year's expedition will be ready in about six months. Thanks to Hilleberg the Tentmaker for making these cutting-edge interviews possible. If you're headed into extreme environments, there's no better shelter than Hilleberg's legendary tents. In fact, Leo Holding took these tents to Antarctica on the expedition that I mentioned at the top of the show. Learn all about them at Hilleberg.com. Until next month, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climb.